if we keep talking to them and we keep trying to provide answers constantly, it means that they're trying to argue with the answers that we're providing rather than allowing some conversation to happen. And in that context, for them to ask questions and then for us to say, I don't know. So I think that there's way more space for long conversation than we acknowledge. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Center for Congregations podcast. I'm Matt Burke, the Education Director and the Northeast Director. And with me is the insurmountable Ben Tapper. Hey, Ben. Hey, Matt. It's uh, really good to be here as always. Yeah. And today's podcast is a little bit different because it's kind of a conversation about conversation. (laughs) Right. Somewhat meta. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it is a conversation about how to have conversations. But when we started talking to John, we thought we were going to be talking about, or we intended to at least talk somewhat about grief, right? And grieving, because John is a chaplain and has been a chaplain for a long time in Fort Wayne. And so mm-hmm. we were curious about what he'd have to say about grief, about loss, closure, kind of things in that arena. And then it just morphed into to something that included that, but kind of grew larger than I think what we originally thought we were going to be talking about, which was beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And usually we talk a bit on the front end about how we're encountering a certain topic in congregational life. But honestly, this one is really more just about the conversation that we have with John. So I think unless, Ben, you disagree, I think we just move to the interview. Yeah. And then you and I can chat about that on the back end. Absolutely. I think that's a great idea. Awesome. So we hope you appreciate this interview with John Swanson, who's a chaplain with Parkview Health in Northeast India. everybody. Welcome back. And we're here with John Swanson, who's a chaplain for Parkview Health up in Northeast Indiana. Thanks so much for joining us, John. Thanks for welcoming me. And not only is John a chaplain, but he is also the author of numerous books, some around Advent and some around grief and funeral services. And so he knows a lot about that world and those kinds of things. And we wanted to talk to John because things have been so unstable over the last few years. And there's just a lot of trauma and grief in the air. And so we wanted to talk with someone who has some expertise in that realm. I think we'd be remiss not to also mention maybe the most important or prominent part of John's resume is that, you know, he worked with the center for a very long time here as a consultant with us, helping local Fort Wayne congregations or Northeast congregations access resources, get grants, and really just sharing his knowledge and his wonderful presence with the rest of the staff. So he was a gift to us for many years. And we want to say thank you for that. And we're excited to have him back here. It's good to be back. That time, which actually 
wasn't as long as it seems. <laughs> but the amount that I learned about intelligent, reflective conversation was remarkable. I think for me, though at the center is not a perfect place, it's a place that attempts to have conversation, attempts to have mutual respect, and that flows into the work that the center does in working with congregations. So for me, it was a very refreshing time. That's good to hear. Thank you. Well, we may have to have a little talk about you saying that it's not a perfect place, but we'll just move past that for now and move on with the conversation. <laughs> I was going to say, John's just leading off with that one. <laughs> so, John, being a chaplain, I know that you deal with a lot of situations where people are in grief, dealing with incredible amounts of change. And as we were talking about before we started the interview, we've been dealing with that as a society. So I'm just curious from your perspective, how do we as people, and especially people of faith, how do we grapple with these changes that we're experiencing both on a personal and at a societal level? One of the things that I've been wrestling with recently is thinking about expectations and thinking about the disappointment of expectations. So oftentimes when we approach difficult moments. So we're approaching life and death moments when we're doing what often happens in hospital environments, which is somebody is in the hospital, things are not going well, there's this urgent request for prayer, which makes complete sense to do. The expectations in our heads or in our hearts of what that will lead to can create significant disappointment. And so I think that we have these expectations that neglect the fact that the death rate is currently at 100%, that all of us at some point are going to have that kind of a change in our life, our life and the lives of the people around us that we care about. And so if we have faulty expectations that everything will get fixed, that other people should die, but my loved one shouldn't, that I don't have to think about mortality for two more years, for five more years, for 30 more years, all of those expectations then are disappointed and then can undermine our faith, can undermine our relationships, can create this anger with each other in really significant ways. I recently had three different rooms, three different situations all three of the loved ones ended up dying. And in each of the cases, the families were saying, no, you can't. It's not time. This shouldn't be happening. Asking God for healing and why isn't it coming? And so all three families of some kind of faith, I'm not sure whether they would have been able to talk with each other about that um, just because of some theological differences. But there was that, oh, this is what ought to happen. It's not happening. I'm pretty angry about that. And I think that there are times that that angry about gets in the way of the ultimate I am sad about, or I need to turn my attention from the anger to I just lost somebody really close to me and half of my life just got ripped away. Yeah. I wonder, I'm just thinking, John, you and I have. We shared this. I don't know if we've ever talked about it much, you know, but I have a very brief stint of my career that I worked as a chaplain as well. And some of the harder times for me were those moments when it seemed like for every person that wasn't family, you know, death was coming or here. 
but family were still praying, claiming victory, claiming healing. You know, and while as a person of faith, I understand the importance of beliefs and I want to respect those and honor those. There's another part of me that's like, I need y'all to understand the moment you're in and to not let your beliefs keep you from making the most of this moment and embracing the fullness of it. But it's a hard line to walk. And so I think that happens in those really severe life and death moments. But I think it probably happens in smaller ways throughout life. Anytime we deal with some sort of loss or potential loss anywhere, I think we can do that sort of masking with our beliefs. And so I'm just wondering in your experience, is there a way you've been able to help people walk through that and navigate it when you see that coming up or what has been fruitful for you? One of the things for me that has been most helpful is simply acknowledging that this is hard and putting a period there. I think that many of us who help people and who are, quote, helping people, end quote, are really uncomfortable with not being able to fix things, are really uncomfortable with ambiguity. And we want to move people to understanding because that'll make them stop crying. Uh, and we're really uncomfortable when people are crying. Yeah. And that the unfortunate thing about that is that for at least some people, crying is really valuable. So I worked in data processing back when it was called data processing when I was in high school. So we're talking massive computers doing small amounts of processing in rooms that took huge air conditioners. So just out of high school, didn't know anything about programming, and would work third shift. And so what you had to do is call somebody if there was a problem. And that's not fun. And so what I learned is, number one, how to troubleshoot on my own. But number two, I learned that oftentimes when I called somebody and then talked through what was going on, I would come to understand. Later in grad school, for me, which is in communication, we talk about the epistemic function of talk, of discourse. And in the process of talking, oftentimes we come to know. There's a writing process called expressive writing. That's a way of writing and figuring out what's going on. And what just clicked for me is oftentimes letting people talk about their frustration with a ear that says, this is hard and an ear that doesn't try to replace the ear with a mouth and give answers, oftentimes in that expression of the grief and the frustration and the, this needs to be fixed, at least some people while talking can come to an understanding of, oh, this is not going to turn out well. Mm -hmm. And so if we keep talking to them, and we keep trying to provide answers constantly, it means that they're trying to argue with the answers that we're providing rather than allowing some conversation to happen. And in that context, for them to ask questions and then for us to say, I don't know. So I think that there's way more space for long conversation than we acknowledge. Mm. I really like that. And I want to make a note and then pass it back to you, Matt, because I think what you're talking about, John, Yes, it applies in you know a hospital setting, but I think it also applies in a lot of other settings. Right? If you are a parent or a mentor working with a teen who just went through their first breakup, this can apply, right? If you are a supervisor working with an employee who's really frustrated and angry and upset, this can apply. And so I'm hoping, and I think we're hoping that the lessons you're able to kind of bring up, 
people will be able to apply to the unique circumstances that might fit into their life and not just look at dealing with grief or loss or change as something that only happens in a setting where a chaplain's involved, because I think it's much more universal than that. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think that what just happened, Ben, in my thinking is, is you ask a question, I start talking about the answer, I suddenly realize connections in my own thinking between pieces of my experience. The idea of reflective conversation is something that takes time and it takes attention and it takes intention. However, what are we rushing to that's more important than thinking through these life and death or life in death or death in life moments? Stopping a little bit creates then some orientation moving forward that can change things. I think that when we started this conversation, Matt, and even before we started talking, we're talking about how there's a gap between us having this conversation and when it is played. And there's this gap that goes back two years when if we had recorded this two years ago right now, we would not have realized how much the world was going to change. Now, we think about those instant changes as negatives, or we think about those instant changes as adverse kinds of changes. But there are positive changes like that that happen regularly as well. And it's possible that if we thought about change rather than as negative change, we just thought about change, there would be a little more openness to, well, what could happen? Because it's entirely possible that somebody will say something nice to one of us today, somebody who has never said anything nice to us before. Mm -hmm. And it can be just as cataclysmic in our lives as a negative thing. Because now we can't think about them in the same way. We always thought that they were a horrible person, that they hated us, and we discovered that they were afraid of us, or we discovered that they were shy about us, or we discovered that it had nothing to do with us at all. There were massive other things going on in their lives at this very moment. And so we're having to deal with the fact that, A, they notice me, B, they actually think I'm doing a good job, and C, I'm not the center of their universe. Um, <laughs> Wait, what? I know. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing. Something I'm curious about, John, because it seems like part of this thematically is the idea of wrestling with change. And often when it comes to a crisis moment, whether positive or negative, we're not prepared and we can't necessarily be taught in that moment to understand how to grapple with the change. So how would a congregation prepare itself? Like what kinds of practices, what kinds of conversations, what kinds of activities would help prepare people to be able to enter those change moments in a way where they're at least somewhat prepared to wrestle with it in an appropriate way? That's a great question, both in the sense of saying that so that I can buy more time, but also saying that in a sense that that's a really important question. How do we teach ourselves and how do we teach each other to flex in change. And I think that part of that is simply not assuming permanence, not having high expectations. <laughs> I, I have incredibly low expectations. It's incredibly frustrating for Nancy. <laughs> and, and after 39 years shortly, we probably should have sorted it out, but we haven't yet. That, that I have 
And I try to teach, let's lower our expectations of other people. Let's not expect them to be perfect. So that when they aren't, we suddenly aren't stuck with, oh, they're evil. Suddenly we're stuck with, oh, they're human. And what human beings do is this. I think that another thing in a congregational setting is to learn how to slow down reaction and how to embrace response. But I mean, oftentimes we'll have congregational meetings, we'll have congregational conversations, we'll have something happen, and there is an urgency. We have to fix this now. But if in all of our conversations within a congregational setting, our response is not to jump to a reaction, but we'll step back and say, hmm, let's wait. Hmm, let's think about that. In the stories of Dallas Willard, there's a situation where near the end of a class he was teaching, a student raised a question and just was really stupid in raising the question. And Willard ended up just closing the class calmly and politely. And somebody said, why didn't you fix the problem that clearly was there? And his answer was, I'm I'm trying to learn the discipline of not having the last word. Well, there's a discipline to that. There's a discipline to waiting. There's a discipline to not one-upping with stories. We hear that all the time in grief. It's a, oh, this happened to you. Oh, let me tell you what happened to me. This was, and those end up not being productive. And then in the congregational setting as well, I have been in too many congregational meetings where all of a sudden the temperature of the conversation goes up. And it's just this, <laughs> it's like somebody turned the thermostat up 15 degrees and the temperature in the room is rising and you're hearing it in, in people's voices. And in those moments in my wiser times, I've called a timeout because whatever's going on isn't about whatever the topic is on the table. There is something emotionally going on in people's lives that's going to mean that if we keep going this conversation the way it's going, there's going to be massive regret. And so I think that if we learn to step back, if we weren't learn to slow down, that will help us in processing change because we'll figure out what's the change that we need to adjust to. Is this a this issue or is this a this issue? I'm wondering if we could circle back to your first point about lowering your expectations. I'm wondering when that goes wrong. You know, you made a point about Nancy getting frustrated with how low your expectations are sometimes, right? But in the example you gave, I'm having trouble imagining the downside of having low expectations. So could you maybe give an example of what that downside is and then how you know when you're walking that line appropriately? If my expectations of myself are so low that I never pick stuff up, so looking at it just in relationship, if I let my low expectations mean that common spaces are a mess, there's a lack of respect for the other person. So those don't have to be mutually exclusive. I can respect the other person and I can have low personal expectations. But if I get those switched, so I have low, I just am messy, or if I'm disrespectful as a result mm. of that, or if I say they are disrespecting you, but uh, they're just human, I, whatever. Okay. There's a huge problem there. And as a parent, so our kids are 35 and almost 31. 
right now. But as I look back, there were times where I probably could have stepped into the defense of our kids and didn't, sometimes in a congregational environment, sometimes whatever. And looking back, it would have been helpful to our kids. It probably would have been helpful to the congregation if rather than saying that's how people are, I might have added that other layer of that's how people are. So I'm not going to be surprised by that, but that's not a healthy way to engage. Mm. Does that make sense? There's that two-step part of that. So I'm not going to be mad because people are stupid. Sorry about that. (laughs) I mean, it's it's true. (laughs) Just put it out there. Actually, but that's not a helpful construct. I can be stupid. (laughs) It's actually not a helpful construct, though. So I can get upset because people ought to know better than to do that behavior. And so I'm frustrated with them for not knowing better than doing that behavior. But it would be possible to say, why are they doing that? Are they doing it because they're malevolent, which sometimes is true? Or are they doing it because they actually have not had that explained to them? That's a different kind of thing. Yeah. But I think that that's where that, if we're working for response, we can step back and say, oh, rather than getting mad or getting whatever, I can evaluate what's going on and then I can respond to what's going on in a more intelligent way, in a more proactive way. Yeah, and it sounds like you're parsing or teasing apart one's internal reactions and especially the emotional reaction to a circumstance and then one's resultant actions to help correct or adjust or deal with the situation. That by having low expectations, you're creating an internal equilibrium where things don't rattle you as much, but that doesn't mean that you then become passive and don't address behaviors that are less than what they ought to be. Correct. Is that accurate? Or less than they could be. Mm. Well, and I also hear you inviting, like, you know, you, you might observe a situation playing out or someone doing something. You have your own reaction to it, but I hear you inviting us into curiosity as well as like an intermediary phase. It's where you observe what's happening and then you wonder about why it might be happening and how, what could be maybe different than the narrative you're telling yourself, right? You might want to tell yourself, oh, they're a horrible person. But if you apply some curiosity, then you can be open to other potential explanations for why this thing has taken place. Well, what both of you are describing is the fact that this is a learning process. So if there is a gap between my internal feeling and then the ultimate action, as you were talking about, Matt, well, there's learning that's there and there's We often call it maturing, but we can learn how to increase that gap. We can learn how to ask questions. One of the things historically for the center is after a conversation in a case study, then we sit back and we look at it and say, if this happens, then I might do this behavior and this might be the result. Well, there is something about that model that, A, if we can do that in real time, helps us because it treats it as a learning thing. And number two, if we're doing that process of learning, so we look at a situation, we say, oh, in this kind of situation, this is what I could do and this is what I might expect. That actually is almost the form of what's called an implementation intention, which has almost as much force as a habit does. 
So there's some interesting research around that said, if you put stuff in writing in the form of in this situation, so if this happens, I will sit down and I will write a response to that. And so doing that has almost as much change in our behavior as if it were habitual, as opposed to saying, yeah, I ought to do that differently. Yeah, it's such an interesting point, John, because it makes me think of liturgical practices. And by the way, whether you're a congregation that practices a high liturgy or whether you say you don't have a liturgy, a liturgy just means the order of service, the way that you go about doing your services. So everyone has a liturgy. But how our faith traditions are supposed to be the practices, literally practicing for how we engage and embrace life. And what made me think of that is that I came out of a faith tradition that was always about hope, joy, resurrection, but there was never any real consideration given to grief, lamentation, trauma. And so because that was the liturgy of our faith tradition, we were not prepared for those moments where we needed lament or to deal with tragedy or to deal with grief. And so I think for anyone listening to this, if you see something in your congregation that is lacking in the way that you're practicing your faith in order to prepare for life, maybe think about what that is and try to reincorporate that back in. And, you know, it's, it's pretty relevant right now because we're recording the day after Ash Wednesday. But if so, if you're a faith tradition that doesn't incorporate Lent into your tradition, maybe you need to think about that because that is actually a practice, a way of practicing for life to think about human sinfulness, to think about the kinds of things that we've been discussing and preparation for disappointment because we know that life will have disappointment. And as you mentioned, John, that as stated in Fight Club on a long enough timeline, the death rate is 100%. (laughs) You're not supposed to talk about that. Sorry. A perfect resource for what you're talking about is Tish Harrison Warren's Prayer in the Night, where she takes a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night. And that's the beginning of it. And then it walks through a number of caring kinds of things. But she came from a more evangelical background and is now an Anglican pastor. And her interaction with that prayer, as it connects to some traumatic things in her own life, and then reflecting on it, it's a remarkable use of a prayer to guide thinking about subjects, both positive and negative, such that I had seen the prayer, seen her mention it, and then read the book, which came out the beginning of 2021, if I remember correctly. And finally, then just memorized that prayer for as I'm falling asleep at night. And sometimes I make it through and sometimes I don't. But the sheer honesty of it, particularly about a year ago, that starts out with keep watch with those who watch or work or weep this night. We have chaplains at our hospital 24-7. And so as I'm going to sleep, I'm thinking about the chaplain who's standing there with the families who are weeping. And for me, it's been a acknowledging and turning it over. And there's something significant in that. The prayer also ends with shield the joyous. And some of us can go way to the lament side. Some of us live there (laughs) because of being so acutely aware of that and realizing in that prayer also is the 
but there are those who are joyous, and God protect them in their joyfulness. And so, just that short prayer, which is an excerpt from a much longer evening prayer service, can be a helpful acknowledging of the full range of what humans deal with. And her book that was before that is called Liturgy of the Ordinary. And she walks through pieces of life, of daily life, and talks about them from a liturgical perspective. And I think that both of those, because of her life experience, can help us understand both the liturgical, but also in the daily life element of it. And reading her work just drives me nuts because her writing is so dense with idea and smooth to read. And that combination is just like, really? You're that good? This is so frustrating (laughs) and delightful. So, (laughs) Well, thanks for those recommendations, John. We'll make sure that those books appear in the show notes and in the resource list for this episode. And John, as we wrap here, I'd love for you to share where people can find you and find your work. The best starting place these days probably is socialmediachaplain.com. I write a daily devotional, though I don't call it a devotional because I don't think of it that way. I write stuff that's helpful for grief, for thinking about how do you walk into hospitals, some of that kind of stuff. But if you go to socialmediachaplain.com, then it'll point you to those other places. And I want to highly recommend John's works in general. One of his most recent books is This is Hard, What I Say When Loved Ones Die is a fantastic short book, very practical in how to deal with those who are suffering in grief and in tragedy and loss. And John, appreciate you. You're a good friend. It was good working with you all those years at the center. I'm glad we stay connected. And I really appreciate your wisdom and your grace and how you move through life. And John's being a little bit modest. He's a heck of a writer in his own right. So check him out if you can. Thanks. And thanks for this opportunity. What's delightful is to be able to have the chance to have conversation like this. So, And it's really good to see both of you too. Nobody else can see you, but I can. And this is awesome. So so thanks for the time. (laughs) Thank you, John. Yeah. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. All right. Next up, we'll talk about the interview and share some resources. That was a rich conversation. And honestly, conversations with John are always rich. And you know this far better than I do, Matt. Y'all have worked together for a number of years. Mm -hmm. But what in that richness really stood out to you? There were a lot of things, really. And I think this conversation between you and I will probably highlight a number of those things. But one of the things that cropped up right on the front end of the conversation was his idea of the disappointment of expectations Mm. and how we have expectations about something, those expectations are disappointed, and we focus more on wanting that disappointment to not be true as opposed to just dealing with the situation as it comes. And we were talking about that in the domain of grief and especially, you know, someone passing in a hospital setting. But I think that's so accurate in terms of a lot of life that we have certain expectations, we're disappointed by that, and we don't allow the natural emotional process to deal with that disappointment. Rather, we maybe externalize it as anger or blame in some way, shape or form. 
Yes, absolutely. And I really appreciated being able to talk with John about that and being able to ask him, you know, as a, as a chaplain, how he approaches those situations. And to give credit to just people in general, because, you know, I can be kind of hard on people. I think it's tough being present in the moment with someone. It's tough being present with someone you care about and knowing they're going through a hard thing or they're about to lose someone that they love and not having an answer and not being able to help or take an action to do something. And so I understand why we show up the way we do sometimes. And I understand why if you are a person in the depths of grief or confronted with a serious loss, why it can feel easier and maybe it can feel like the only thing you can do is to hold on to what could be theoretically possible rather than deal with what is actually present before you. Mm -hmm. And so I have empathy and I understand that, but I appreciated the way that John talked about it. And I, I hope that our listeners felt the same invitation I did, which is to kind of take more of a sober look at what is present, whether what's present before us is joyful and happy and wonderful, or it's really hard and makes us want to cry or just collapse. Like I think there's, I don't know if beauty is the right word, but there's something worthwhile in those really hard moments. And we miss out on a key experience of being human or a key moment of growth when we don't face them soberly, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And just the mismatch between, it's like well, we talked about, I think it was Psych 101 back in college, right? You talk about first order desires and second order desires. That first order desires are things like hunger or sadness or anger. Like those are things you just feel. But then second order desires or feelings are the way that you think or feel about those feelings. Like, I'm hungry. Well, if you have some kind of problematic relationship with food, then you might feel shameful about feeling hungry or feel guilty about it, right? So you have first order desires that of what actually just surfaces in you that's not necessarily within your control, but then how you narrate that in your own mind, right? And it kind of gets at that distinction for me of we need to, as he said, pause on those second order desires or thought processes and just engage with the first order of what is coming up in us, if that makes sense. Mm. I'm so glad that you articulated the difference between first order and second order desires, primarily because I got a C in Psych 101, so I don't remember any of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad someone else is paying attention. But yes, that, that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. And again, it's hard when you're in the thick of those emotions to kind of think through some of that. And so that's why these conversations like these are important. If you can be reflecting on it outside of it, then you can just kind of like a muscle reflex or emotional memory pull back on some of this as you're processing it in real time. And that's important. One of the things that stood out to me from my, our conversation with John was just how much he appreciated the way we have conversation. You know, I didn't, I didn't really expect that, but it seemed really valuable to him. And again, given his professional background, that meant a lot to me. You know, this is kind of how you and I just talk every day. And so I, I'm just, I'm used to us dialoguing like this, whether it's in person or for the podcast. And I don't stop and reflect often enough on how often I see this type of conversation, conversation that holds space for the other, conversation that is genuinely curious. I don't know that I'm thinking regularly about if this is showing up in the other spaces I'm in. And if it's not, if there are ways that I can help invite that type of conversation into the space, because I think it allows for more of a generative way of being in relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I absolutely agree with that. And I think for me, <laughs> it reminds me of the stereotypes we have of old people and the way that they talk. Mm. That 
they'll mm. be rehashing the past or if there's an old married couple, they use the same typical jokes with each other or talk about the same, you know, political or social issues in the same ways. And it made me think about the discipline that he mentioned of pausing and assessing and really learning in reflective conversation takes energy. And I think that... Mm something that can happen to us is we get into these grooves and these habits and these patterns of talking about the exact same things, of having the same perspective of the exact same things. And <laughs> the short of it is I don't want to be one of those people that does that, right? I want to have fresh right. energy. I want my mind to be changed. I want to continue to grow. I want to continue to think differently about things or be confronted with different ways of thinking about things. And please don't get me wrong. I'm not ageist. Like... <laughs> The wisdom of older people is incredibly valuable. Sure. <laughs> True story. No, so if you're older listening to this podcast, please hear me. I value you. <laughs> I'm glad you're listening. But, and I think even just me in my middle age, I'm tending to fall into some of those habits and patterns of thinking the same way and just saying the same thing about things so that when you're in conversation, especially with people who think the same way that you do, you're really not having conversation. You're just saying things that like, mm. you know, the sky is blue. Yeah. Yeah. Blue, man. Yeah. The sky is blue and the, and the grass is green. Uh-huh. Yep. Grass is green. You're in conversations yeah. where you're just saying things that everybody in the conversation already thinks or believes. And so you're really not having conversation. You're just kind of reinforcing the thought patterns and the habits and the truths that you are already thinking. And so the practice of reflective conversation is to inject some silence, yeah. to have some curiosity, to toy with a perspective that you disagree with and say, well, you know, why do I disagree with that? Why is that something that I find problematic? Yep. One of the spaces, you know, you may not be expecting this, but one of the spaces I think I more regularly experience some version of reflective conversation are in black barbershops. If you go into a black barbershop and sit down for any length of time, you will hear any variety of opinions on any different subject. It doesn't matter what is being talked about the variety of opinions will astound you, right? Whether you're talking about who is actually the NBA GOAT, LeBron or Jordan, or you're, you're critiquing a new movie that just came out or talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the local dude selling hats down the street, like no matter what conversations being had, people have differing opinions and there is a continuous exchange of ideas. And I think that is so rich and beautiful. Is it always respectful? Eh, maybe not. But it's always rich, I think, and enlightening as someone sitting back and listening. And so there are pockets, I think, in our society where this, at least some version of a semi-reflective conversation happens a bit more often. And it's always enjoyable to be part of those moments. Yeah. And I've been in a few white barbershops. I don't experience the same thing. Maybe I'm going to the wrong ones though, Matt. So does this happen in white barbershops as well? Not so much. In my experience okay. in barbershops growing up, there's not a whole lot of conversation other than the basics of maybe weather if they happen to know a little bit about your family, you know, maybe can you believe this, you know, something, something situation. Okay. But very little real conversation. And the only time it ever got heated was when I was really little and the razor would tickle my neck and I would twitch and they would get mad at me. That was about the only heat <laughs> in the conversation. <laughs> How dare you feel pain? <laughs> That's good to know. Because the barbershops I've been to that are predominantly white are just like your great clips, right? So I don't know that that really represents what you might find in a lot of communities, but yeah. it's good to have your perspective. No, we had a local guy. I wouldn't get my hair cut until I came home from college because the same guy had been cutting my hair since I was like eight years old. Okay. Jerry out at the Hair Hut in Tip City, Ohio. Jerry's passed on. So God rest you, Jerry. He took good care of me. The Hair Hut. Does it still exist? Yeah, it's still there. 
far as I know. Okay. Okay. Shout out to the hair hat. So thank you all for going with us on that tangent, bringing it back to the <laughs> directly to the topic of conversation. One other piece that I really appreciated about our conversation with John, and it happened probably around the first third of the interview. And it was, as I was listening to John talk, I was just struck by how universal the things he was saying was. I thought initially we were asking questions about grief and what does it mean to sit with people in times of pain? But his answers, I think, provided tools for people in any number of contexts. And, and you know, I said that in the interview, whether you're sitting with a teen that is going through their first breakup or dealing with someone that is grieving a loved one, the way John talked about being present, offering a reflective presence, holding space for people, felt like it was pretty universal. And I really just, I loved that you could extrapolate those practical tools and lessons from a very specific context that we were asking him about. Yeah, and I think that's what reflective conversation does, right? That you may be talking about particulars, but then you reflect on it and think about the universal aspect of those truths. Yeah. And I think that's what can be really, really powerful about it is that it's much broader than where you start. Yeah, absolutely. And I do want to note for our listeners, you know, we've got a wide variety of resources that were mentioned in the podcast and some that weren't in the show notes. So please check those out. Specifically, if you're someone who is currently going through a period of grief or you are walking alongside someone else that is going through a period of grief. I think some of the writings of John, some of the books that he recommended, as well as his posts on social media might be really helpful tools for you. So we have been sure to include those in the show notes. So if you're interested directly in dealing with grief and loss, there's some information there that you can check out. Mm-hmm. So in that spirit, you know, we've touched on resources. We've got resources that are already in the show notes, but I think there might've been one or two other resources that you and I wanted to just bring to supplement what John mentioned, Matt. A resource that I wanted to bring is 10 Ways to Have a Better Conversation. I may have mentioned this in a prior podcast, but it's by Celeste Headley, who is the author of a book on conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's just a really great 11-minute video about 10 Ways to Have a Better Conversation. And I just think as people of faith, as I have engaged with congregations in the almost eight years at my time with the center, one of the key deficiencies that I have seen in a lot of places is the ability to have good conversation, good relationship. Yeah. And I don't say that accusingly by any stretch of the imagination. Relationships are difficult. People are scary. When you go into a situation where you don't know other people, we all experience anxiety in that. And, you know, so many congregations are running after this new program or this new idea. But I think on some level, all congregations, it would be helpful to pull back and begin to think about how do we have basic conversations? How do we have civil conversations? How do we really care for and love people in our context. And it's just been on my heart for a number of years now. So this is an interesting video and it may lead you to be interested in the book as well of just how to have better conversations that really do good things in your life and in the lives of others. Thanks for bringing that resource, Matt. And even if you have brought it before, I think at some point we'll end up recycling resources, but it is important to think about and talk about and learn how to have these kind of conversations. So I'm glad that you're bringing it again. A resource that I'm bringing is a book called Strategic Leadership for a Change, Facing Our Losses, Finding Our Future. The book itself, transparently, is a tad dated. It was published in 2009, but I think the general themes that are brought up are still probably useful. It's a book designed for leaders to wrestle with what it means to guide their congregations through a period of change and loss, and it helps leaders think about what it means to not only address the loss while also casting a vision for the future and making space for grief. 
And that's a really hard and complex set of things to do, which is why I think this book is important because leaders need tools to be able to do all that, to be able to kind of shift between casting vision and holding space for grief and helping people understand what it means to process and wrestle with loss, whether that is loss of a program, loss of identity, loss of a loved one or a key leadership figure, regardless of what the loss is, you need to be able to do some combination of setting a vision, holding space for grieving, and teaching people how to acknowledge, care for that sense of loss that they experience. So I think this book is very important for those reasons. I'm sorry, Ben, but I don't see the relevance. (laughs) I don't see how, you know, large-scale grief and major change, trying to recapture vision and leadership, I don't see how that's relevant. Oh, wait, pandemic maybe? I mean... Maybe there was this little thing called COVID. I don't know if you heard about it up in Fort Wayne, but it's making the rounds. (laughs) And it's funny, but also sad that so many of us have had to deal with as much grief as we've had to deal with these last two to three years. And some communities have been hit harder than others. Um, But it does make conversations like these and resources like these all the more pertinent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so if you need resources like this, really on any topic related to congregational life, check out the CRG.org. That's T-H-E-C-R-G.org. It's a website where basically you can put in searchable terms such as conversation, leadership, fundraising, anything like that. And we have cultivated some of the best resources that we have found. These are independently researched resources. These are not things where they're ad-related or ad-buys or anything like that. These genuinely come out of our work and are things that we have found that we believe are helpful to congregations. And as always, we want to invite you to follow us on social media. You can find us at the Center for Congregations on Facebook and Instagram. And it's an easy way to keep abreast of education events, podcast launches, and different happenings that we have taking place at the Center. We also want to thank the Lilly Endowment for their generosity. Their support allows our programming to happen And it allows this podcast to take place and allows us to bring the great guests on like John to share their wisdom. And so we just always want to thank the endowment for the work that they do. And we want to thank our genius audio engineer, Jaden Lee, for helping us sound impeccable and giving us insight and tips into the podcast game. Um, Just being a good guy and a good friend. So we appreciate you, Jaden. Here, here. And if you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love for you to rate and review us on iTunes or follow us on Spotify or wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast. The more hits we get on follows and stars, the easier it is for others to find this helpful information. Yes. And finally, we want to thank our listeners in Ireland, specifically, I want to say Leinster, Ireland. I may be butchering that pronunciation. In fact, I probably am, but just know my heart's in the right place. For those of you that listen out in Ireland, thank you so much for your support. And we hope you're finding this content meaningful. And if we'd love to hear from you, if you get a chance and you want to speak with us directly, you can email us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast content. If you have any topics you'd like to hear in the future, if you have any guests that you would like us to have or any resources that you think would be helpful, we would love to hear from you. So feel free to shoot us an email at podcast at centerforcongregations.org. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. We appreciate your support and look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, I'm Ben Tapper. And I'm Matt Burke. Thanks so much. 